Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode of The Protocol is sponsored by the Stellar Community Fund. Dive deep into the blockchain realm with The Protocol Podcast with Coindesk founding editor of The Protocol newsletter, Brad Count, and tech journalists, Sam Kessler and Margot Nykirk. They unravel the intricate technologies powering cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, one block at a time. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello and welcome to The Protocol Podcast. I'm Brad Count here with my co-hosts, tech reporters Margot Nykirk and Sam Kessler. We're so excited to dive into today's show, as we say, with the latest news and developments in technology behind crypto and blockchains. First, please do not forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol, on Coindesk.com. And now let's get right into it. Uh, we are we have a pretty incredible scoop by Sam Kessler, our very own, here uh, just out a few minutes ago, lighting up the headlines. We're going to get to that. But first, we're going to go to Margot. Margot, I mean, you were, I don't know if you were up at 1.30 a.m. covering this. But... No. <laughs> okay. But you have been all over covering Ethereum's upgrade of putting the Denkun upgrade on the Gurley testnet. You know, Margo, just first set the stakes for us here. What is going on here? Yeah, the first major test of the Denkun upgrade, which is we've talked about here a bunch on on the podcast, that includes the the upgrade that will enable proto-dank sharding. One of the takeaways of that is that It'll be cheaper to transact on layer twos and data available, data storage on the Ethereum main blockchain will be cheaper as a result of that. So that's happening in a few months time. Before that always happens, there's a bunch of tests that the developers run through to make sure that everything runs smoothly once it hits mainnet. And so the first major test happened on their testnet early overnight. If you're in the East Coast, if you're in Asia or Europe, that happened in your morning slash afternoon. And so, and how did that go, Margo? Yeah, there was a little bit of a hiccup. The blockchain wasn't finalizing. So, basically, brief mechanics of how this works the upgrade goes live, and then it needs 15 minutes to finalize for transactions to become immutable on the blockchain. Sometimes there are bugs in the different nodes. Either they haven't updated in time, or as a result of that, there might not be the right amount of participation. And so, that leads to the lack of finality. You can still transact on the blockchain. It just doesn't mean that those transactions are immutable. And that creates a problem in terms of like verifying transactions. 
can also, as a result, create a, like a slight split from the chain. And that's what happened here, that there was, there was a split in the testnet. But, you know, the devs, they worked it out. They figured out that one of their clients, which, you know, if you don't know what that is, that's a software. Like Ethereum has multiple software clients. So the one specifically, Prism had a bug in it. They patched it out. Now the nodes are up and running. Transactions are finalizing. They've rejoined the chain. The chain that split has rejoined. It isn't something major. We've seen this before. What's the upshot here? I mean, was this something that went wrong that doesn't matter? Or was it something major that went wrong? Or, or is it something that they need to fix? Or I mean, what's the, the upshot of all this? I mean, it, I wouldn't say it's major. It's definitely something that needed to be fixed and has been fixed. But I mean, it's like a bug in in a client that leads to like a lack of finality has happened before, even on mainnet. I mean, back in, I think it was May or some sometime late spring, early summer last year, there was a problem with also, I think also with Prism nodes, there was a bug in, in the Prism nodes. And transactions on mainnet Ethereum were not finalizing. That took some time for them to also patch out. So it's not ideal, obviously, but these are, this is like why tests are happening in the first place, right? So that that right. can be right. prevented. And so this is the first, the first of three tests. So we still have two more. The devs will spend the next, I don't know, couple days going, getting a autopsy of, of what happened. Tomorrow, there's a big dev call. They'll probably have an initial report on that, but I'm sure this will take, you know, multiple days, at, you know, at best. The big thing of this upgrade, you know, is this proto-dank sharding, right? Yeah. And, and adding these data blobs. And that part of it, I mean, I think your story had a tweet from Tim Baiko, one of the key Ethereum devs, right? That did get the blobs in there. Yeah, I mean, everything in, like, Denkun is a bunch of different upgrades. So the main star of the show is is the blobs, EIP-4844. And so everything is functioning. Like, everything was running. It's just a question of solidifying, then verifying, and making this these transactions immutable. So, yeah, it works. It's just, it's, it's just you know, there is some problems in those nodes. Do we have a sense of whether well first off i'm like so i I used to cover this stuff a lot more closely and now Mm -hmm. frankly i don't and Mm -hmm. so i forget first off with protodank sharding which i know you know scales things specifically with an eye towards Mm rollups and making it so that they can post more data and do things more cheaply is that going to translate to lower fees for regular ethereum users because these rollups are already pretty cheap I guess that's the question. Like, do we have a sense of whether users are going to notice anything when this upgrade comes, or is it mainly these infrastructure builders? I think that's something that has yet to be figured out. There's a lot that can come at play here, right? Like, we're also heading into a bull market, it seems like, or or we're heading out of a bear market. So there will be more activity. Who knows what that means in terms of transaction fees? That could just automatically always up that threshold. But I think. 4844 is geared towards rollups, but also like proto dang sharding is like the first step, right? In in ultimate dang sharding or sharding, I should say. So, you know, there's still a bunch of steps on its way. But I think it's interesting as we've talked about sort of on this podcast, how data availability has sort of like come into the limelight over the last, I don't know, six months, eight months. And as a result, like this, this upgrade also benefits that now that that's sort of part of the bigger conversation and, and what's going on in Ethereum. And when's it actually going to happen? Like, so like the next phase is going to be in a few weeks, right? Like, do we have any sense? Is this months away? I feel like Ethereum's always, you know, there's always something. Every single month, there's like some testnet upgrade or, you know, some node software is getting upgraded or, you know, what have you. Like, is this actually coming up? 
Yeah, I mean, they have project, you know, they haven't had set a, a date yet in stone, typical. But I think they first want to go through another two rounds of testnet testing. Uh-huh. Well, testnet testing. The next is Sepolia, I believe, and then it's Holeshki, which we've talked a whole bunch about Holeshki, the new the new testnet. I don't know if this sets things back in terms of Sepolia. Right now, they're aiming for Sepolia for February 7th, and then they will do Holeshki. And then they said, you know, mainnet might get early or end of Feb, early March. But who knows, right? This is a little bit of a hiccup. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see tomorrow on the call how devs are reacting to this and whether they feel like they need to you know, take their time and not rush the process, which a lot of devs have always advocated for and past upgrades like with the merge, you know. So right mm-hmm. now there is an end in sight. We just don't know if the end of the tunnel keeps being pushed back. We should probably move on here. But, you know, Sam, to your question, it seems like the market's going to end up deciding a lot of this, right? There's all these players, you know, building these networks. And, you know, I guess if it's cheaper for them to park data on Ethereum and that helps to scale and there's more of them and then there's supply and demand for transactions, basically, right? Separately, the question of how long things things take. I saw Vitalik recently updated the roadmap for Ethereum, right? And it was, I, it was, it's, there's so much on that roadmap and we are still like very much, you know, near the beginning <laughs> of that roadmap, which is pretty interesting. But at any rate, thank you for that, Margot, uh, which she covered, uh, by the way, with our colleague, Shadia Mala. Yeah, shout out to him. Uh, shout out to Shadia for helping us out on that story. And so, all right, now, Sam, your big scoop today, MetaMask, you wrote about Intense just last month and how that is kind of this, you know, super abstract, but really fascinating trend in blockchain design. And now MetaMask is sort of like stealthily deploying it in one of its features. But why don't you tell us about what your story is? Yeah. So basically, like MetaMask has this kind of secret project that's been underway following an acquisition from MetaMask parent company consensus of of a company called Special Mechanisms Group. Uh, Essentially, they're building the mechanism by which MetaMask is going to be able to become an intent-based system, and it'll have third-party transactions on it. There's all this jargon to this story, but really at like a fundamental level, what this is, is it's a switch to A, how MetaMask works for users. So instead of users submitting transactions to the MetaMask, in the future, they're going to be able to submit intense, the idea of like, hey, I just want to sell my tokens rather than, hey, I want to sell my tokens to Uniswap for this price. Don't go above this price, blah, 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 which is what you have to do today to do a transaction. So MetaMask is making it so that these third parties will help users kind of like do the busy work of figuring out where transactions should be routed. We've talked about this on the podcast before at length, the idea of intense. But the second thing here is it changes the sort of like underground um, model by which transactions are routed from point A, from users to point B to the Ethereum ledger, rather than going to Ethereum's, you know, there's this idea of a private and a public mempool. There's a question of whether this is a private mempool. There's all this, again, jargon and stuff we can get into. But at a very fundamental level, usually when you submit a transaction to Ethereum through MetaMask, it goes to this public mempool, which is this, you know, waiting area, which broadly speaking, is just all transactions that users have submitted to Ethereum before they've been cemented onto the ledger. Now, transactions are going to go to this special sort of mempool layer system. I don't know what you want to call it. MetaMask wouldn't give me what they were going to call it. 
But essentially, it's this sort of layer that sits atop Ethereum, whereby third parties kind of take on the onus of routing transactions into the Ethereum ledger through the the best possible route. Again, it's it's confusing, but the overall concept is kind of simple, like what it achieves. I mean, just to throw your question earlier back at you, what will users see? There's an example of like how this has already been rolled out. So there's this thing called smart swaps in MetaMask, which has a very early version of SMG, Special Mechanisms Group's new transaction routing tech, this tech we're talking about, built into its system. And it's a good example of how this all works for users. So rather than a user having to go to Uniswap and submit a specific transaction to a decentralized exchange like they would have done in the past using MetaMask, now what they'll be able to do is they'll use this smart swaps program, which is a program built into MetaMask that says, hey, you have these tokens, we'll find you the best price. That's essentially the way that this works. And under the hood, the way it works is the transaction is routed through a a, a series or ultimately the way that it's going to work today, it's kind of in a beta mode. It's going to have like a, you know, a series of transactions that these third parties, you know, have the ability, the leeway to route users through in order to net them the best, the best price. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll stop there. There's like nuances to all of this, but it's way easier for users. They just say, hey, I want the best price. And then they trust that these third parties will get them the best price. But there is some trust there. I think consensus and MetaMask has gotten have gotten a lot of uh, backlash from blockchain users and folks or people who just are blockchain advocates that they might be a little bit too mm-hmm. centralized. Does this sort of contribute to their road towards decentralization? I even think I remember seeing somewhere that they had some kind of roadmap for that. Is that is there some promise in this, or does yeah. this create even more tension around that subject? That's a, the question I think, and I'm super. Just curious to kind of see what happens on that front. So MetaMask is the most popular crypto wallet on Ethereum. Most transactions on Ethereum, broadly, like, you know, roughly speaking, I I think it is like most I've seen, I couldn't put it in the store because I couldn't get an exact number, but like some measures, like 80 to 90% of DeFi transactions go through MetaMask. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's correct, but you know, wherever you look, it's a lot of transactions. Mm -hmm. They touch MetaMask first. So if MetaMask puts together a new system where they, even though they're creating this mechanism that they say is neutral, transparent, yada, 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 but they are putting together a mechanism that routes transactions through third parties to get users, you know, price, better prices, gas fees, and so on and so forth. Anything that they do in that space does kind of like open up the door to a lot of centralization questions. So if MetaMask is in any way or consensus putting their finger on the scale, which they say very you know, firmly to me that they aren't. But if they were, or if regulators decide what their mechanism does, you know, comprises them putting their finger on the scale, even if that's not what's going on, it's not a good look for them. Because again, they control so many transactions, that's like 80% going through this like one thing. It it reminds you of like how we've talked about flashbots in the past, which is that MEV middleware that sits on Ethereum that touches 90% of all blocks. They, even though they're creating this kind of like what they say is like a neutral, they were really explicit, like neutral not vertical integration, you know, they have it top of mind, all these criticisms, but depending on how this mechanism works, they open up like a whole, you know, yeah, just a Pandora's box of, of I mean, it's, it's sort of interesting, this, the tension in the economics here, right? Where you have, yeah. you know, you have the community deciding, oh, we want this all to be decentralized. And then you have, 
you know, the individual players who want to get theirs, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, in other words, if the if decentralization is kind of the golden goose, you want to, you know, take as much as you can get without killing that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to end up talking about this a lot more on the podcast. Hopefully we find, you know, some some good interviews to to talk about it as well. But it's what I'm most interested in, which is just how value flows through Ethereum. And specifically, like there's this buzzword that we talk about a lot here, MEV, maximal extractable value, the idea that people can preview Ethereum's mempool to front run you, you know, do all of these different things in order to net themselves a profit at your expense. The idea of MEV is, you know, kind of just like the story of Ethereum and blockchains broadly. And rather than getting rid of it, examples like MetaMask, where they've kind of like taken transaction routing into their own hands or into their own mechanisms hands, are an example of how MEV, this idea of like actors all over the place, just trying to, you know, preview your transactions or route your transactions to net themselves a profit. It moves up the stack further and further and further from like the base Ethereum chain to the infrastructure that runs atop it to the banks that, you know, give, you know, our market making and giving money to, you know, uh, providing a marketplace for this infrastructure to fill user orders. This is all like I'm talking about it vaguely and we can get more in depth about it another time, but it's all being figured out. And it's one of the most exciting, but also like risky and troublesome areas of of crypto. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Sam. I mean, you heard it here on Coindesk first. Just say, but Maybe. you know, I mean, some of this stuff, it's like you're, we're here at the cutting edge of the cutting edge. We really are, you know, and it seems a little yeah. abstract yeah. until, until we've talked about it a million times and then it'll seem like clear as day. Right. But, I should say not to interrupt you, Brad, but one thing I didn't mention is like the people who scooped this story or like who, who gave me this story, several people, like there was concerns about it. Like they didn't know what it was. And now yeah. because of this story, we have a clearer idea of what it is. But it kind of just shows that there are like kind of stakes. And even with these like super technical yeah. things, there's small groups of like people that for some reason really, really, really care and think that it, you know, is an existential sort of a thing for Ethereum with these hyper technical yeah. stories. Yeah, for sure. Great job, Sam. Uh, all right. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking with John Lillick, who is the executive director at the Telos Foundation. I did an interview with him and uh, we're going to have that. Have a blockchain project idea and need funding to make it happen? Look no further. The Stellar Community Fund is here to help bring your project to life on the Stellar Network. This year alone, over $10 million in XLM awards have been allocated across more than 100 innovative projects. And your idea could be next. Approved project submissions can receive up to $100,000 in XLM per project. So head over to communityfund.stellar.org to get started. Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. I want to push back slightly on the idea that cash, the value of it, I mean, that's what FX markets are about, right? Is like arbitraging differences in cash value. And that's a whole gigantic market around currency exchanges. And so I think there that we do see trading that happens in cash. But to your point, you know, the use of cash as a means of payment, etc., is pretty robust and sticky as a concept. And I think the joke is always, you know, if cash didn't exist, no one would invent it. But hey, it, it does exist. And so that's the world that we're in. 
Look, there is a crypto angle in this. Our job is not to sit here as either geopolitical or conflict resolution commentators, but it matters to everybody, every human being. Given how horrific this story is, the fact that there was an order to shut down crypto accounts used by Hamas and that Binance came in to cooperate with that, of course, is yet another negative story around crypto. Take the frame from wherever you want to take it, but by remaining silent about bad actors in our industry, about criminal behavior, about terrorists, about whatever it is, and just focusing on the topic of our show, but I mean this more generally, by remaining silent, we are complicit. You heard what she had to say. Go out there, call spades, spades, stand up for what is right. Like just, it's time to, to stop shirking the responsibilities we have. And yeah. it's just time to just stand up for what's right. Listen to Money Reimagined every Wednesday on the Coindesk Podcast Network. You can subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. All right. Welcome back. We're going to jump right into our Protocol Village interview segment. And I had the pleasure of speaking with John Lilick recently uh, joined Telos Foundation as the executive director, but he's an OG crypto, Bitcoin consensus, Polygon, that he's been around the block. And now he's he's kind of casting his lot with Telos, which he thinks is an interesting ecosystem. It was a pretty cool interview. Anyway, let's go to that. We're here with John Lilick, recently joined Telos after a super interesting career in blockchain going back a long way. And we're going to talk to John today and find out about his background and get his thoughts on kind of where the industry is headed and kind of where he, he see things playing out and then what's happening on Telos. So, uh, John, welcome. Thanks a lot. Wonderful. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You know, it's, it's wonderful to be here and it's great to see what Coindesk has become over the years, which is... Uh, you know, this wonderful publication. And so uh, uh, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, let's get into it. You know, John, and I, some of our people who may be joining us may not be totally, you know, familiar with your background. But how did you get into this world of blockchain? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, just basically dumb luck, extreme dumb luck, uh, more or less. Uh, in 2010, 11, 12, I was doing uh, e-commerce, all sorts of things, drop shipping, buying domain names, optimizing them and having wholesalers ship. And I would process payments on my websites. And uh, one day my uh, merchant services account was uh, shut down. My bank account was frozen. This was like in uh, mid, uh, well, I guess in the fall of 2012, the bank, I mean, I had a perfectly legitimate business. I was selling all kinds of things, including garden seeds, for example. And this is before Amazon really was Are like you selling uh, gardens, garden seeds. Yeah, among among other products, because this is this is like before Amazon was really eating the world. Back then, you could use CMS systems like Magento and plug into wholesalers and manufacturers. You could buy domain names, optimize them, uh, get the traffic, process the transaction, send the request to the wholesaler, who would then drop ship, and you could make a little margin, right? Um, and wow. so anyway, <laughs> the bank. The bank accused me of selling uh, sex toys, which I wasn't. I don't even see what's wrong with that. I won't name the bank, 
very, very large bank uh, who, you know, has a colorful history. Anyway, froze my money. I had no money for nine months. It took me nine months to get my money back while they did their investigation and determined that I did nothing wrong. They wrote a letter saying you did nothing wrong, but you're hurting a reputation because you're selling sex toys. And uh, froze my merchant services account overnight. I lost everything. I used to think having a bank account was like a human right or something, you know, like one of those things that was very official, very serious. Anyway, in the midst of that, basically panic, uh, stress, you know, I started looking for alternatives, quickly realized PayPal was not going to be an alternative, uh, stumbled into Bitcoin, just became totally obsessed by it, ended up uh, going to the uh, 2013 Bitcoin conference in uh, Holland. Patrick Byrne in Amsterdam, Patrick Byrne was a keynote speaker. Overstock CEO. That was sort of like, you know, one of the first big events, I would say, as far as uh, Bitcoin conferences are concerned. At that point, how were you looking to get involved or what was your angle? I had no idea. I, I just bought some Bitcoin. I got very obsessed. I started learning about other economic theories I'd never heard about before. Austrian economics, for example, started thinking about cryptography and trying to find communities online. Realized that in New York City, there was a BitDev meetups. And the BitDev meetups at the time were quite robust. Uh, so I said, okay, I'm going to New York. I met a guy named Nick Spanos who was running a place called the Bitcoin Center. It's actually featured in uh, Morgan Spurlock, CNN, uh, big feature. And uh, Chris Knutieri uh, did a great video banking on Bitcoin, a great movie banking on Bitcoin, which I think was on Netflix. I volunteered there for uh, pretty much all of 2014. Uh, I had a wonderful opportunity. My coworker was a guy named Austin Alexander, who's uh, head of business development at Kraken for many years. Lots of early pioneers came through the Bitcoin Center. Jesse Powell, Brian Armstrong, Joe Lubin. I ended up sort of talking to lots and lots of Wall Street pros. Just had a tremendous experience. And the Bitcoin Center was right next to uh, New York Stock Exchange on 40 Broad Street. And so the opportunity was incredible for me. And through that uh, experience, I got to know... I got wind of a of a project called Ethereum, became sort of obsessed with that, dove headfirst into it, was very fortunate to have the opportunity to join Consensus kind of early in mid-2015, I guess. Uh, and then I spent the next, well, until the end of 2020, so almost six years, like intensely working to uh, try and grow out the Ethereum ecosystem and try and build Consensus as a company. Um, and so... Just like a weird trajectory with lots and lots of uh, just dumb luck of sort of being in the right place at the right time. You then worked for Polygon first. That's right. First so yeah, yeah, that's right. So during my time at Consensus and working on Ethereum, I learned about uh, what it, many things that Ethereum can do well and other things it can't do well. And this is sort of before the L2 craze started. A guy named Mihailo, who is kind of like my I mean, he's like family to me almost. He's a very, very good friend of mine, was a researcher at the time. Uh, and he had a project called NET. And this was like 2017, 2018. I actually went to Belgrade, Serbia, where he was living, spent some time with him there. I tried to convince a uh, company I was working for at the time, Consensus, to invest. They declined. I just kept in touch with Mihailo. At the end of my time at Consensus, at the end of 2020, I then joined Polygon. Uh, well, Matic at the time, we rebranded the Polygon. A few other, I guess, somewhat well-known people in the Ethereum ecosystem at the time also joined Hudson Jameson, a guy named RSA that does the Bankless show, uh, Pete Kim from Coinbase, and Anthony Sassano. And, and then we rebranded the Polygon and sort of like spent a couple of years trying to grow out the L2 ecosystem. What was your role at Polygon? Basically, I was one of their first investors. 
and I was an advisor initially on the product development side in particular. I spent the first six months of 2021 reaching out to all the DeFi projects and all the other projects out there that ended up deploying on Polygon. And to their credit, Polygon was very responsive. I could spin up a Telegram channel, introduce people very quickly. We would have lots and lots of support available on the Polygon side to do things like fix RPC endpoint issues and other nuisances as far as like when a project would deploy on the network and try and get things up and running. And then after the first year, probably the second year, I spent most of my time advising Sandeep and Mihailo, uh, the two sort of principal founders, more on a strategic level. And, and so Polygon spun up Polygon Labs and onboarded lots and lots of big corporates. And so that was the kind of thing I would a lot of time helping them. We just uh, wrote recently about their their new verified tool that they built with uh, Fox News. I don't know if you saw that. For It's like a yeah. protecting deep fakes. Uh, it's pretty cool. Sam Kessler used it and wrote about his, his use of it. But well, let's just move forward now. I mean, why don't we talk about Telos next? Sure. You know, tell us, how did you end up getting connected with Telos? Well, given that I was in the L2 ecosystem, I was really thinking about Ethereum scaling. I was doing lots and lots of research. I came across this like obscure project and I said, wow, these performance characteristics are crazy. Uh, very high throughput, very low cost gas. It had this like weird history of starting off as an EOS project and, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I know Brendan a little bit and Brendan Bloomer and I know obviously the history of EOS and I thought, okay, well, let me look into it. And then I realized, oh, well, it's an EDM. Um, and so uh, by then I had spun up my own venture fund and I said, okay, I should probably invest in this thing and give myself an incentive, a reason to delve deeper, which is what I did in 2021. And I bought the token. I started getting more involved from the VC side as far as like just trying to understand the ecosystem. And then really over the last couple of years, the value of the token collapsed and they had lots and lots of struggles. I think the intensity of the competition, particularly in the Ethereum scaling ecosystem, increased substantially. Obviously, Arbitrum, Optimism, all these incredible things. And, you know, you see these other innovations, whether it's uh, things like Celestia or Fuel, etc. I mean, it's just incredible. There's so many things happening, EVM and non-EVM. And so I thought, okay, these guys are having a tough time. Let me delve a little more into what's going on. I started to get to know the team. I realized everyone's sort of like very straight, very hardworking, very like, you know, there's not any big controversies with Telos. I said this in the uh, intro video when I when I joined Telos, it's just been kind of boring, frankly. The team members are not engaged in attention-seeking behavior. They're just sort of like going about their daily grind every single day. And I thought, wow, okay, this is a good group of people. Maybe there's Maybe there's an opportunity to collaborate more meaningfully. As I saw the opportunity, I started accumulating a bigger position and, and thinking, okay, well, this is something that I really want to uh, try and give it a shot. I risk, of course, lots and lots of work, but I'm kind of fascinated by the uh, potential. I agreed to join their foundation, you know, in the executive director role. They already have a CEO. They already have like 30 some odd employees, people who are working on a day to day basis. I help sort of hopefully get more attention uh, for Telos, but just as importantly, dived into the day to day grind, uh, especially on the strategic side, partnership side, et cetera. You know, full and disclosure. Is that a paid position, John? No, 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 no. I, uh, I'm not paid any salary. I'm not paid any tokens. I have 
purchased all my tokens. I've assumed all the risk. And if things go well, then I mean, I mean, I've been very fortunate with a lot of this stuff. But uh, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not paid any kind of a salary uh, okay. at the Telos Foundation. No. I mean, just Telos. I mean, to your point, you let rattled off. You know, all those projects that we talk about and write about all the time. Telos probably not. You know, on the tip of everybody's tongue. But <laughs> uh, what? What would be? You know, sort of the the tech forward elevator pitch for Telos? Like, wh- you know, where does it sit? I mean, you mentioned, you know, EVM and it comes from kind of EOS tech or, or origin. I think it's like a, it's like a fork off of EOS, right? Or something. But uh, Telos, what is Telos? Yeah, sure. So it's, uh, it's got an interesting history. It did start off as a kind of like EOS project. And since then, it's really evolved. And I would say similar to, for example, DYDX, building enough liquidity and volume in the Ethereum ecosystem and feeling like it can move to a more appropriate technology for its feature sets on the Cosmos ecosystem. Telos is sort of like really focused on the EVM ecosystem. Basically, it is layer zero. It can run pretty much anything. Like, if I'm being intellectually honest about it, and I've said this very publicly so it's not any alpha or anything like that it's sort of like if i'm going to protect my wealth for the very long term i'm going to buy bitcoin okay and i'm going to park it in cold storage Uh, but if i need to use the evm as a thin end fiat client basically and and this is something i've also said just to be very clear this is my personal view but you know in early ethereum we sort of promised or we talked a lot about the world computer and building a world computer. We didn't build a world computer. Soft Azure, AWS, Google Cloud built the world computer. We built a global U.S. dollar banking system, basically. Ethereum helps the U.S. dollar proliferate globally, which I think is a very good thing, um, not only for America, but for the world. The demand for dollars is very, very high. Obviously, stable coins, wallets, transfers of stable coins, etc., um, has become the main use case. And so when I think about something like particularly in developing countries, the need for the dollar and the difficulty with which accessing the dollar, you know, is, is often the case in, in, in many places. Downloading a MetaMask wallet and availing of stablecoin transfers immediately without uh, really any barriers is fundamentally very important in many, many, many countries around the world. And so then you sort of like think about that a little bit more and you say, well, okay, if I'm going to send 20 bucks, but it's going to cost me $4. That doesn't make any sense. And so I think Telos, you know, given its architecture, given the fact that uh, it has this like very high performance, very low cost, very high throughput, uh, I think is sort of like well positioned to service the rest of the world, particularly for these types of needs. I'm not talking about like high value uh, transactions where you need tremendous security like you find with Bitcoin. I'm talking about, you know, lots and lots of small transactions, um, sending $10, $20, $50, um, in-game purchases, etc., the kinds of things that really most of the rest of the world is doing, you know, something like Telos where, and again, it's always convenience and, and security is sort of like the trade-off, right? Like the less convenient something is, the more secure it is and vice versa. Um, and that tends to map to performance characteristics as well. Uh, and so, you know, you've got this kind of like base layer with this like 21 validator set, block producers, uh, much like with EOS. Within that, you can write a smart contract. That smart contract can run the EVM. It can run 
many other networks and you can sort of like have very high performance characteristics. Uh, you do need to use bridges. Uh, you do need to use other ways of connecting and talking to blockchains. There is lots of innovation on the Telos roadmap to make that much, much less frictionless or rather much more frictionless. When you're thinking about it as a utility to use the blockchain in a meaningful way at a very low cost, I think Telos is just sort of like very well positioned for that use case. Uh, and that's why I got excited about it. So it's basically, it is an alternative to Ethereum then? Or is that a way of thinking about it? Or it's an, it, like, what is its closest proxy or competitor, would you say? Well, I would say you can think of it as a competitor to other L2s. I mean, demand for block space okay. in Ethereum is, is very high. Costs are going up across the board everywhere. And so you can use something like Telos to execute EVM transactions, like moving stable coins onto the network and firing them around and doing so at, you know, a fraction so of a penny. It's kind of like, a, I mean, it could be a competitor to Polygon. Is that one idea? Potentially. I mean, for, for, a lot yeah. of, for a lot of the similar use cases for cheap, very fast transactions, yes, that would be or essentially. Or Exactly. And, and we, yeah. we do have memes you know, showing the performance characteristics uh, where the block times are much, much faster, fraction of a second. The transactions per second is, you know, 15,000 plus, so much, much more than others. What I think is the actual utility of the EVM, which is that it's basically a global U.S. dollar settlement layer. We're being intellectually honest about it. Of course, there are applications and all sorts of ideas for building things that people want to use, but really people are mostly using DeFi and they're mostly firing around stable coins. And so um, it's basically a global US dollar bank account. So if that's the case, if you accept that argument, then, and, and by the way, I think that's very good. I think that, uh, I think the dollar proliferating around the world is good for the world. It's good for America. And if that's the case, then really the thing people are probably going to want to care about is, okay, who can do that for me at the lowest cost? I'm seeing the you know these like TPS figures you know they're they're creeping more into the conversation. I feel like people are getting more serious about like really really taking the throughput up to the next level. You know, I'm just seeing that more often. People you know really focusing on network speeds and like on a totally different order of magnitude. But okay, so we should probably wrap it up here pretty soon, John. But how does Telos get from its current market position into something that's more front and center, if that's the goal, or is it could be viable to stay as a niche player? But I'm curious, like, what is like kind of what's the strategy here, and maybe the abbreviated. We don't have that much time, but the abbreviated roadmap for getting there. Sure. Uh, the abbreviated roadmap is Telos uh, will be focusing on Asia. I'm in Asia. We're starting an Asia road trip uh, in a couple weeks. We're already confirmed. Uh, we're having events, uh, Japan, Korea, China, Hong Kong, uh, Vietnam, India, Philippines, Singapore. So we're going to focus on this region. This is, in my opinion, I've spent half my life living in Asia. I think it's the most dynamic region in the world. Um, we're going to focus on real use cases that real people care about, which is low-cost transactions, very high throughput. I have been a top sponsor at various events, including SCC, which is the largest steering community conference event in the world after DevCon. Telos is going to be the main sponsor this July. In, in, normally, it's in Paris this year. It'll be in Brussels because the Olympics are in Paris. Uh, it's also going to be sponsoring a few other events, uh, marquee events. 
Uh, we're going to be, you know, like the Steve Ballmer meme, you know, developers, developers, developers. Okay. I'm going to be on stage dancing and sweating and preaching how much I love developers because they're the engines of creation. We're going to do lots of hackathons. Uh, we have a robust roadmap we shared with the community. Uh, lots of really cool ZK stuff. Uh, so development will be picking up. Uh, and, you know, strategic partnerships. We're having lots and lots of discussions with, you know, Ethereum projects right now who may consider deploying on Telos in the coming months. We're going to work very hard to uh, make that happen. And I'm expanding the uh, Telos advisory board. It's not just going to be me. It's going to be other people who are recognizable, uh, who have experience and track record. Uh, we're going to put it all together. We're going to work really, really hard. Uh, we're going to hope to uh, get a little bit lucky. And really, our objective is not to continue to be a niche uh, project, but to compete with the Solanas of the world, the AVEX of the world, the uh, big players out there. The primary challenge for Telos right now is more on the, say, on the marketing and development, business development side than, than like the tech. I would say so, yeah. I mean, like nobody knows about it. It's unbelievable. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of like step one. And, you know, by the way, Matic, before it became Polygon, Matic was around for like four years. Nobody knew anything about it. You could have bought Matic for a fraction of a penny in 2020. The network launched in 2017. The token launched in 2019. Nobody knew anything about it. Those guys kept grinding away. So it can take time and very often does. This isn't like, you know, even, even, you know, and and there's many examples of that across many networks. Uh, It takes a lot of time. Uh, and Telos has been around five years. It's produced 300 plus million blocks. Um, it does have a community. It's a very, like, <laughs> very robust, very loyal community. But now it's time to expand that. We're going to do our best. I think when people find out about the performance characteristics and the tech behind it, it's the kind of thing that you sort of look at and you say, wait a minute, is this real? You sort of look into it a little bit more. The technical documentation, everything is there. Performance over the last five years, you know, we can sort of like back up these claims. You know, now it's just a question of, are we in the right moment in space and time for things to start start moving in a, in a positive direction? And, you know, we'll see. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much. I mean, that was really fascinating. Uh, and I love all the little real, the authentic detours that, <laughs> that life takes us in. But uh, anyway, thank you for your time. Appreciate you joining us. It's late there in Asia, I know. So I really, really appreciate you guys taking the time and uh, thank you very much. Brad. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, uh, thanks again to John for joining us for that interview. Uh, and that is it for us for this week. Thank you for listening to the protocol podcast. Big shout out to our producer, Michelle Musso. Thank you so much for keeping us on track. If you have any questions about any stories or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Protocol. You can listen to us weekly on Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please, 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 please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol, on coindesk.com, where if you are subscribed or had you been subscribed, you would have gotten Sam's scoop today delivered right into your inbox you get it fast (laughs) you get it first on coindesk but hey it came with the newsletter very shortly after that anyway thank you for joining us we'll see you next week